morning, everyone. It's a little loud today. Hey, we're starting a, a, a new series um, on spiritual formation. Typically, if you're new with us, we preach through uh, books of the Bible, verse by verse, thought by thought, chapter by chapter. We're going to take about 13 weeks at the beginning of this year, and we're going to really hit uh, spiritual formation. That is, practicing the habits and the ways of Jesus and trying to really uh, integrate the way that Jesus lived, his behaviors, his practices. Uh, the things that he gave him, himself to into our own lives. And so Jesus, uh, as he left us, as he commissioned his disciples, he gave this enduring uh, command to all generations who would come after him. And it comes in two parts. And first is uh, he called people to follow him, to, to repent and to change our minds and to change our way of living before God, to trust him in faith that Jesus himself is the Redeemer who saves people from their sins. And then the second side of this coin is he called people to also follow him in obedience to his body of teaching and to his commands. And so to be a disciple of Jesus literally means to be a learner. That the Greek meaning of disciple is to be a learner. And Jesus' native uh, language was Aramaic, and, and the Bible was later translated into Latin before it came to English for us. And the Latin word for disciple literally means to be an apprentice. To be an apprentice is to, be, to, is to commit yourself to a skilled master teacher, to learn from this master teacher, and then to employ this body of knowledge that you're gaining yourself and to begin to practice it and to live it out. In 2004, um, I moved, I was 24, 25 years old, uh, I moved up to uh, this little artist village called Tagaski, Saskatchewan. There's about 100 people in Saskatchewan and I li- in, in Tagaski. Um, about half of the homes were deserted. It was this quiet little town in these flat canola uh, fields. Uh, I moved there in February. The wind was blowing. The winter bite was harsh. But I moved up there into a home for seven weeks with two other guys to learn the art of luthery. I went there to, became a, to become a luthier. Say luthier. Do you know what a luthier is? Some of you do, some of you don't. A luthier is someone who builds acoustic instruments, acoustic guitars, uh, upright basses, banjos, mandolins, things like that. So I moved up there because that's at that time what I thought that I wanted to do with my life and I needed to learn. I moved up there not having any skills. And so for seven weeks, literally, I would sleep in this house with these guys. We would walk across the street, literally, to the the luthier studio and we would learn from this master teacher and then we would carry out these steps, step by step, and designing our own instruments. So we were trying to apply what we were learning over the course of seven weeks, step by step. We had, I know this is hard to imagine, we had no cell phones. Literally, there was a phone on the wall that was corded into the wall with this, you know, with like the stretchy, you know, those of you who remember those, there were literally no phones, there was no internet, and there was no TV. So we had our craft across the street, and I brought a couple of instruments with me. And on February 7th, I moved up there at the end of February. On February 7th of 2004, I had a radical, a radical encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that changed my life and turned it upside down. And so I brought with me the scriptures as well. So I had the scriptures. I could play some music with the instruments I brought, and I was just there to, to learn. Uh, and what happened was, over the course of this seven weeks, is I came away with this. So 
I had the opportunity to design uh, and build this guitar. You'll notice right at the top of it, if you come and look at it, it says Lida. Uh, it's one of a kind, this guitar. I carved this out of abalone, mother of pearl, all of these inlays I carved literally by, by these little coping saw, this little hand saw. I used a band saw on this. I used a, occasionally we would use a drill press, and then I'd use an HVLP gun to spray uh, the lacquer on this. But otherwise, every single part and piece of this guitar, all of the inlays, the bridge, the fretboard, everything was completely hand hand-planed, chiseled, the whole bit, all hand tools. It was an incredible experience. But I moved up there having no knowledge whatsoever of how to build a guitar. And being a completely unskilled craftsman, I came away with a guitar like that that is, that, that is truly a really nice guitar. Not only does it play well and sound good, but it is, uh, it's tasteful in its appearance as well. I gave myself to this teacher, David Freeman, Timeless School of Luthery, and he taught us step by step. And, and over time, our skills and our craftsmanship developed. So... The point of all of that, the point that I bring that up to you, this idea of apprenticeship, going to a master teacher with having no skills and then coming away after applying what I was learning, um, having, having uh, been given those skills, we've titled this sermon series, uh, Rhythms of Grace. It's a way to describe uh, a way of life that's humming with consistent relational connection to Jesus as our master teacher. Not just our master spiritual teacher, but our master relational teacher. He is the human of humans who knows best what it means to be human and how to live. And so he teaches us how to live, and, he, and we follow him in obedience. As we do so, our way of life, it develops. Our New Testaments, your New Testament, the latter part of your Bible, they, it comes with this profound body of teaching from one of the most influential and powerful men ever to live. I'll say it like this. If anyone in history is best known how to live, it is Jesus of Nazareth. And so our, our desire over the next 13 weeks is to give ourselves to this, to give ourselves to full-hearted obedience to him, developing his habits and developing his way of life for our own lives. And so what are we going to do? We are literally going to mimic him. We are going to put on the things that he put on and try to live as he lived and thereby learn from experience that Jesus' burden is light and his yoke is easy. And so what we'll do this morning and what we'll do over the course of this month is we'll begin with prayer, something that Jesus loved and something that Jesus craved. He's regularly going to lonely places because he's craving the presence of the Father. He's going to just spill his guts out in the countryside late at night, early in the morning. People are clamoring and looking for him. Where is Jesus? He's always like kind of off somewhere. They've got to go and find him. And it, 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 come to find out, he is giving himself to communion with his Father. He loved to hear the voice of his Father, to speak and to just to spill his guts before him. And he often, he didn't just pray in lonely places and desolate places in the wilderness. He also prayed often around his disciples and for people as he encountered them. And Luke's gospel in chapter 11 gives an account of this body of teaching, the Lord's Prayer. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke describes that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and his disciples were there with him. And when he had finished, one of these disciples just kind of speaks out and says, Lord, will you teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? Like, come on, man, you haven't taught us to, to actually pray. And so Jesus said, 
said, when you pray, pray then like this. So our text over the next month is going to be out of Matthew chapter 6. It's a, it's a fuller account of the Lord's Prayer. Luke's gospel gives us a shorter version of it. Matthew gives us kind of the full version. So we'll throw it up here on the screen, and I just want to read this text and get it percolating in your heads and in your hearts. Maybe you'd even just read it with me out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Jesus in uh, verses 5 through uh, five through the beginning of 9, he sets up where this prayer is coming from, from Matthew's perspective. And so I just want to read this to you. So this is in your mind as I begin to just unpack this. And really, Jesus is shaping what prayer is not before he actually gets to what prayer is. He says this to his disciples, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand, they love to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, Jesus said, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So he's contrasting now pagans and the irreligious from who he's just mentioned, the Pharisees and the religious rulers, those who are typically religious or self-righteous. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Here's a question that I want to ask you. What was your first relational action? What was the first relational action that you took in your relationship with God when you became a follower of Jesus. So what I'm trying to get at is your first relational move toward God. You might have come to church. You might have been brought by a friend. Maybe over time you were persuaded and you believed that Jesus is God. Then what? What was the first relational action that you took toward God as you believed? Did you talk to Him? Did you spill your guts to Him? Maybe you declared like I did. I remember that moment in 2004, February 7th, where I just spilled my guts before him, but I found myself declaring who I knew him to be and what he was like. At the very same time, maybe you, like me, were just spilling your guts about your guilt and your shame and your past and your regret and the things that you had given yourself to that you genuinely felt sorry for. Maybe you just said, help me. And that was all that you could get out. That was all that just kind of squawked out of your racing mind and your, your beating chest in that moment. Go back in time. Try to remember when you first spoke to God. Do you remember the time when you first spoke to Him? Did you talk for just a moment? Was it brief? Did time have a tendency to or seem like it stood still for you? Maybe a a parent or a friend or a spiritual leader helped you form words as you were trying to figure out what it means and what it looks like for you to talk to God, the creator of everyone and everything. Whatever it was, you knew that God was there in that moment. You knew he was there and he was listening to you. He was tuned to you. 
little old you, fumbling words, right? Needy heart. The God who has created everything was tuned into you and to what was going on in your life and in your head and in your heart. Jesus Christ, he's not merely a movement leader. He's not merely an ideological hero. Jesus is the God who is here. He was crucified, buried, and world history changed three days later as Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead and changed existence. And now we manage our calendars and we tune our watches to his life. He's not an ideological hero. He's not simply a movement leader. He is the God who is present. Scripture says never to die again. No one has become a follower of Jesus without communicating with him. No one. No one in this room is a follower of Jesus who has never communicated with God in repentance and active faith. First, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, call out, draw us. Second, what is our response? We respond and we call back to him in saving faith. Our speech, our prayers, they're always, it's answering speech. It's God who calls first. And then third, over time, as we learn to walk with God and live with God, he speaks to our spirits and and this begins this ongoing life of relational connection as he directs our steps. John uh, chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, teaching his disciples. In John 10, 27 through 30, he said this, My sheep, that is his flock, those who, are, uh, those who he is overseeing and who are under his care, my sheep, his people, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then Jesus makes the statement, I and the Father are one, meaning they are unified. Jesus is saying some profound things in this little nugget of Scripture. What he's saying, what we're learning here, is that he speaks, and he instructs, and he teaches And those who belong to Jesus recognize his voice and follow him. That is listening prayer. We are are tuning our ears, our spirits to the mind and the voice of Christ as he instructs us. Do this. Don't do this. Say this. Don't say this. Have you thought about this? What about this? We're tuning our ears to his ongoing voice. Not only that, he gives eternal life, meaning he is incredibly generous No one who is his will ever not be his. So Jesus makes promises here, and he keeps them in this little text of Scripture in John chapter 10. He also says his father. We see father in the New Testament titled as father or also referred to as God. He says that the Father has given all, has given Jesus all those who follow him. So all who claim to be a disciple or a learner or an apprentice of Jesus, the Father has preemptively gifted and given to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus makes this statement, the Father is greater than all and will protect all who follow Jesus. Nobody's going to snatch him out of my hand. Nobody's going to snatch him out of his hand. My people are secure. And then he makes this statement, I and the Father are one. It's a statement of unity. There is, no, uh, there is no competition between them. The Father's will is Christ's will completely. And Hebrews teaches in your New Testament, this letter speaking of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all. 
teaches that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning, if, if the Father, who is spirit, were here in bodily form as a man, we would hear from him and experience him as we have Jesus Christ. There is no competition between them. Their mind, they are unified completely. So to hear Jesus' voice and to follow him, that's one part of prayer. We most clearly hear from God through the Scriptures. Maybe some of us are saying, I feel so distant. I feel like He has pulled away from me. I'm not hearing Him. Perhaps you're looking for a mystical experience or a spiritual experience where you want Him to speak audibly to you or overwhelm you in some capacity by His presence, but we look over and we look beyond the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's words to us. If you want to hear God speak, open your Bible and read it out loud. He's speaking to you through his scriptures. So that's how we listen to him uniquely. I'm not saying he doesn't speak in other ways, but he speaks primarily through his word, and we must, we must rest on it and rely upon it. But another way that we pray is by speaking to God in prayer. This is another aspect of prayer. So we listen to him through the scriptures and other means but we also speak and spill our guts before him. So here's the most basic definition of prayer that I could come up with. My own words, communicating with God. Prayer is communicating with God through listening and speaking to him. We're going to unpack more of what prayer is, but I think this is a starting point. So if you're wondering, if, you, if you're looking for a definition of what prayer is, it's communicating with God by speaking to him and also by listening to him. As you know, human communication, right, it's two-sided. It consists of listening and speaking, and prayer is very similar. Prayer is our most basic and fundamental means of relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom are unified completely. And you know this, just like in human relationships, communication is everything, is it not? It's everything. When we're frequently and honestly communicating and making space in our hearts to receive one another, our relationships are often life-giving and they have a quality of closeness to them. They're filled with understanding, filled with empathy, filled with service, filled with flexibility. When we're communicating trust and health and when we pull back from one another, something always fills the distance. It always moves in and fills that distance between us. Lack of intimacy, distrust, speculation, fear, guilt, and other dysfunctions. And there are, I want to be very clear, there are times when we pull back in relationship from one another, where we put our foot down and we say, I will not go on any longer like this. There are times where it is necessary in human relationships to pull back and to call time out. However, in our relationship with the Lord, there's never a time to pull back in our relationship with him as though he cannot be trusted. Even when we don't understand what he's doing, his word declares that he's holy and that there is no darkness in him whatsoever. Yet many of us do pull back from him, don't we? We separate, we pull back. Many of us are probably potentially in that space right now. We've pulled back from him and we recognize that the spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now. 
I have pulled back in distrust. There are things that have happened to me. There are things that have been said to me. There's things that I've done to others. There's things going on, circumstances in my life, thoughts I'm thinking, feels I'm feeling. There are things going on that have caused me to not trust him and therefore to pull back from relationship with him. And now dysfunctions are filling the gap. Guilt moves in. Fear moves in. Speculation moves in. And the distance seems to grow. And Jesus is very clear in his scriptures. Seek me and you will find me. And so he's calling you in the space that you're in right now, recognizing that you have pulled back to seek him and to find him. Jesus gives this context for the Lord's Prayer. And, the, and these disciples, like I said in Luke chapter 11, they hear, they hear Jesus praying, and so they request that Jesus would teach them how he prays. And notice the first four words of verse 5. We're in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, of verse 5. What does Jesus say? One of those is a throwaway word. Three of those are very, very, very important. And throwaway, when you pray. Jesus is saying right out of the gates, when you pray. Pray. Remember who's saying this. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the one who has defeated death. It's one, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. It's the one who has opened blind eyes and opened dull ears. It's the one whose life we calibrate our calendars and watches by. He's saying, when you pray. So if anybody knows how to live, it's Jesus Christ. His basic assumption, his working Assumption here is that people pray, is that we pray. So don't let yourself off the hook right here. Take inventory. How is your prayer life? How is your communication, speaking and creating space to listen to God? What is it like for you right now? So many of us, we move into this quick place of condemnation where we begin to hang our heads in guilt and shame. It's not what we're looking for here. We're looking for honest assessment. And I'm going to kind of twist the screws a little bit with this question. If the quantity of your prayers were measured in minutes, would it compare to the time that you spend on your phone? If the quantity of time spent in prayer were measured in minutes, would that quantity rival the time that you spend on your telephone? Now, Here's why I'm asking that question. I'm asking that question to, to shock you into realistic self-assessment. I'm, what I'm not doing as I ask that question is I am not creating a new law for you to live by and to experience more guilt and condemnation. That's not, what, not at all what's happening with that question. I want you to take an honest self-assessment. Nowhere in the scriptures do they teach that you, you and I have to spend more time in prayer than we do on our phones. Nowhere in the scriptures do we have to, to qualify and quantify minutes working and then make sure our time praying overshadows the time that we spend working or the time that we spend in school or the time that we spend parenting or the time that we spend eating meals. Nowhere in scripture are we given a directive for how many minutes we must spend in prayer. That's not a law that hangs over any Christian. The scriptures do teach and do uh, urge us forward to pray unceasingly, to pray without ceasing, to create a kind of push and pull communication relationship with the Lord where we are constantly open to him to hear what he has to say and constantly ready to spill our guts to him in total honesty. 
Look at verse 5. When you pray, don't be like those who are two-faced. They act spiritual. They put on a good show. Oh, praise God. Oh, praise be to God. Like, they're just, they've, they've like got the language. They've got the words. But as you know, or maybe you've experienced this from some folks who tend to just be religious, but you know there you have a, a sense that the, that inner life isn't there. It's like the lawn is mowed, but the, but the electricity in the house is turned off and the fridge is empty. You have a feel that, like, it's show. Jesus is saying, don't be like them who love to stand in public, who love to receive from men praise. Don't be like them. Jesus gives instruction to go into a quiet place. Close the door behind you. Go into solitude and seek the Father. He sees you in secret and he will answer you. He will fill you. He will encourage you with his presence. For the Pharisees and for the religious rulers, prayer isn't actually worship of God, but it's a means for them to be praised and worshiped by other people. So Jesus says, when you pray, not that, but this, we can have a different way about us. We can go to a lonely place and seek the Father's face, that is seeking to know him, to know what he is like, to know what he does for the sake of seeing and hearing from him. He sees all, he hears all, and as we come to him in faith, we understand that he will reward us, and it's not a debt reward. We haven't earned something from him. I've spent time in prayer, now you've got to give me. No, it's actually a grace reward. He doesn't have to give, but he does. He refreshes our hearts, he drops wisdom on us like a bag of books, and he meets us where we are. And the Father is not a vending machine. He's a kind-hearted Father who generously cares after our every need. Even when you and I accuse him of not being there for us, though he was more present than our toddler perspectives will allow for, he doesn't quit on us. He doesn't stop pursuing us. He doesn't stop listening. He keeps coming back, picking us up, dressing our wounds, and steadying our lives. And so prayer at its core is about communing with the Father of fathers. He is the creator of everyone and everything. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus will go on from there, and he'll give instruction, and he'll give a template for us to pray by. But it's not just a template saying, don't be like the Gentiles, don't be like the irreligious, don't be like the pagans who think that they need to repeat these empty-headed phrases and essentially bab they're babbling mindlessly before the Lord. Instead, Jesus seems to in infer an alternative here, essentially valuing quality and mindfulness over quantity of words or time spent appearing to be in prayer, when in reality it's just babble. John Stott, a theologian who has passed away now, he says, Jesus is always calling his followers to something higher than the attainments of those around him. Jesus is always calling his followers to something higher than the attainments of those around him, whether they're religious folks like the Pharisees or secular folks like the Gentiles. Jesus says, don't be like them, and then look at what he says. He says, look at the text, seven, page 761 in the Black Bibles, don't be like them for what? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's calling the Father your Father. There's this indication of intimacy here. Essentially, Jesus, what He's doing, He's giving qualifications for how not to pray before actually teaching them to pray, which I find really helpful. Like, 
when somebody gets in the car for the very first time, it's probably good to tell them not to mash the gas pedal, right? Like, this is the gas pedal, this is the brake pedal, don't just slam this thing to the floor, otherwise we're all going to die, right? It's helpful to say what not to do sometimes as a way of instructing later what to do. And I think that Jesus is doing that. And he says in verse 8, don't be like them, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so here's how I'd summarize verse 8. When you pray, talk straight. When you pray to God, when you settle down, hunker down in prayer, when you're speaking to the Father, talk straight. Take a cue from King David in Psalm 38, verse 9, a man after God's own heart, a man whose heart and disposition God highly valued, and David was up and down in his emotional set. O Lord, he said, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. So David is not getting formal in any sense of the word in his prayers. He's not being irreverent, but he's not being formal either. I believe that formality kills intimacy in relationships and particularly in our prayer life. The more formal we are, oh, we beseech you, Father, to, you know, like that kind of stuff. That may have been good and common for a time, but we don't talk like that anymore. And I would encourage you, and I think the Scriptures are very clear in their vernacular, their language, that people talk straight to God and dump out their uh, grieving, needy, weak hearts before Him. So I would say, when you pray, talk straight. So many of us, so many of you, I know this because I've heard from you, you fear saying the wrong things to God in prayer. You fear saying the wrong things to Him, and it cripples your praying. It cripples our praying when we pray like that. Why? Because we're not praying straight. If we're holding back, we're not praying what, with what is actually there. We're not bringing the content and the whole of our emotions and our hearts and our fears and our failures and our hopes. We're not bringing the whole package, the whole bag before Him. He knows us to the bottom anyways. Does He not? Why are we playing games with Him? Why would we not just come to Him and just say, I don't like you right now, if that's how you feel, and then talk it out with him. I'm not advocating being irreverent before him, but I am advocating being, being insanely honest before him. He can take it. He had to come for us to save us by the way of cross, by the way of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Does he not know how bad it is in the human art? Yes, he does. Talk straight. See, we misunderstand the Father's heart. We misunderstand His character. We misunderstand His demeanor. We misunderstand His pleasure in us. Remember, it's the Father's will to redeem you and I by giving us to Christ Jesus. So consider Jesus' words in John 10, right? The Father has given us. Literally, what that means is the Father has chosen us to belong to Jesus Christ. It's His will. What that means, the practical implication of that, is that the Father is filled with mercy toward you. Not pity, mercy. He's willing to spare you from what you deserve. Spare me from what I deserve and give us the righteousness of Christ as grace, undeserved, total favor. So we don't have to come in flinching. We don't have to come in tossing up our prayers like a game of 500, just hoping that God is going to catch one of those, pull it in, and hear us, and maybe by chance reward us. And we also don't have to come into the Father's presence stammering and stuttering, because if you really say what's really in there, 
He'll spank you, right, with his wooden spoon of cosmic justice. That's not his heart toward those who are in Christ. The Father's heart, you need to hear this. This is good news. The Father's heart is so kind to those who humble ourselves before Christ that unskilled prayers like myself and like you can bum rush him in prayer so Jesus teaches us not, he teaches us how not to pray, and, and then he begins to open up, and the only words that I'm going to cover in the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to be done this morning, are the first two words, our Father. He teaches us how to pray. He says, don't pray like the Pharisees, don't pray like the, 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 the irreligious pagans, the Gentiles. Pray actually like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy or reverent be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. I want to orient you really quickly to the Lord's Prayer and what this is. I don't want you to just view the Lord's Prayer as didactic only. Didactic is a fancy word for, for teaching or a teaching tool. It's not just, it's not just a, a teaching tool. Um, I don't think that Jesus is merely teaching his disciples how to pray with this prayer. I believe that Jesus is legitimately praying this prayer and modeling his own prayer life to the disciples. It's very much an actual prayer of Jesus containing the body of his teaching and his philosophy of prayer. He's modeling it to them. Imagine Jesus praying this prayer himself. It come, man, I wish I could hear the voice of Christ where you can see the content of the prayers of Christ and the prayers of Jesus in the Bible. Imagine him praying it as it echoes his heartbeat and what his life is all about. This prayer, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. JJ and I were talking about this this morning. It's like you look at the Lord's Prayer and you go, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, I can take 40 minutes or 35 minutes and preach that on a Sunday. And then you start drilling into it and you're like, what have I gotten myself into? It's like the little folder on your computer that you click it and poof, like all the other folders within it and files dump out. It feels to me in some ways like that's what the, Lord prayer, the Lord's prayer is here. Look at the structure of it for a moment. It's evenly, stru it's evenly structured between um, six petitions, okay? This, these six petitions, these requests are split into two groups of three each. And so the first, if you notice, our Father in heaven, the very first request is hallowed be your name, holy be your name. May you be seen as you are by creation. That's the first petition. The second is still Godward. It's still about his glory and his, uh, his personhood and, the, and his ways being recognized and revered in the world. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the prayer shifts into the second set of petitions here. And the second set instructs us to come to him asking for what we most need and also asking him not only to provide for our needs, but to provide for the needs of other people. And this first word here, our Father, orients us to who we are praying to. In a broad sense, God is the Father to all people everywhere in that He is the creator of everyone and everything. But in a very specific sense, God is Father of those true, intimate, close, relational Father to all who belong to Christ Jesus, those who know Him personally and have true communion with Him. And Jesus doesn't teach them, notice that Jesus doesn't teach them to pray to God, to, like to pray to quote God as a generic title, but He teaches
teaches these disciples to pray to the Father. He gives this specific title, this specific descriptor. It's a title of intimacy. It's a title of relationship, and it's not a distant title either. It's Father. Now, we all come with with all kinds of notions about what it is to be a father. Some of us in the room are fathers, and all of us in the room have had fathers, whether they've been close and wonderful examples or whether they have been evil examples to us. We carry wounds from our fathers, good and bad. We carry hopes of our fathers. But the father here, God himself, he he names himself as Father. This is a chosen title by Jesus for him and also one for him by himself, like the Father has chosen this for himself. We don't see it a lot in the Old Testament. We only see it about 15 times in the Old Testament, God referring to himself specifically as Father. He speaks of himself as the Father of Israel or the Father of specific um, individuals. But in the New Testament, the fatherhood of God, it takes on this whole new life through Jesus Christ. It takes this turn with Jesus. So just to orient you in your New Testaments, how often the term and title Father is used for God in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, turtle, the, the title Father is used about 65 times. John's Gospel, it's used over 100 times. Capital F, Father, as Jesus is constantly saying, Father, 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 Father. If you read the Gospel of John with fresh eyes, looking for Father, and then looking for the link on how Jesus relates to him and speaks of him, it'll change the way that you read John's Gospel. It's incredible. It will change that entirely. In Paul's letters, he refers to the Father over 40 times in his letters. It appears in greetings, doxologies, blessings, exhortations, petitions, prayers, thanksgivings, creeds. Like, it's all over Paul's letters as well. It's really, really interesting. And Paul titles the Father, Father, not so much about his role in creation, but really his role in the redemption and the restoration that's made available to us in Christ Jesus. So like we've just come out of Galatians, he'll, he'll say things at the beginning in Galatians 1, like grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he'll say, this is according to the will of the Father that we would, that Jesus Christ would give himself for our sins. And in Galatians, as well as Romans, which we have just, if you're new with us, have just finished up teaching through Galatians, Paul echoes this use of Father. Actually, what Paul does is he echoes Jesus' use of Father in the Aramaic language. See, when Jesus was teaching them this prayer, he was teaching them in his native tongue, likely. And so this word Father is actually Abba. Maybe you have heard of it, A-B-B-A. It's a familial title. Uh, It's an intimate and relational title for the Father. And there's been a lot of unhelpful teaching around the word Abba. Maybe you have heard it translated as Daddy. Some of you probably have. Uh, I don't think that that is a good translation, and, his, and history is kind of proving that to be the case. It is, uh, it, if you pray that way, fine, not a big deal. But it, if you're really looking for like the true sense of what, that, what the word Abba carries with it, it, it the English uh, translation of Father is probably the best equivalent to Abba because it denotes uh, reverence, for him and his position and his power at the same time that it draws us into intimacy and connection. Couples it with closeness, couples it with affection. 
The roles of a father, we're just getting started and here's where I'll land. The roles of a father in life, the ideal father, protector, provider, challenger, teacher, counselor, coach, friend, as we move later in life with some of our fathers, companion. Jesus starts this prayer by essentially introducing us to his relationship with the Father, teaching us as disciples that we have communion with the Father as Jesus Christ has communion with the Father. And that's where he's taking us in this prayer. So that's where I'm going to stop this morning. I just want, I'm going to give a couple of points of application and they're going to be short. Um, I think they may even be up on the screen this morning. As you look at this prayer, I want to challenge you to use it as a template for your own prayers. And as you find yourself thinking about the subject matter that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer here, introduces to you, I want to, you, to encourage you to just let your mind go and to begin to bring those things that you're thinking of before God in prayer. But specifically in application, I want you, church, to memorize and internalize this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Can you do that? I'm not very good at memorizing. Are you serious? <laughs> you can't memorize that sentence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, reverent, be your name. And just begin to memorize that and internalize it. And I want you to begin to vocalize it in your words. Also expound on it and in your language as well. And I would, addition, I would encourage you to slow down and to quiet yourself in consideration of who it is that you're speaking to, recognizing that he is everything that we wish our earthly dads were or that they are. Consider the ideal father as you pray to him. Maybe you have wounds and they're deep wounds. Consider the ideal father, good earthly fathers. What are the qualities that you know that you hold to be true? This is a good father. Go to God as the epitome of that and ascribe to him the glory. Just go as far as you can in describing the ideal and ascribing that kind of worth to him. And maybe you have poor earthly fathers and you, and you are instantly brought into connection with how they have failed you. Name to the Father how he is different and how he is perfect and how he isn't like your earthly father and thank him for introducing you to life with him. And then last, here's my last point of application. Create space and write prayer literally into your schedule. It is not unholy and it is not unspiritual in your binder, in your phone, wherever you are, to write prayer into your schedule. The most important things in our lives get scheduled, do they not? Write prayer into your schedule. And every time you look at it and you're tempted to think that, man, it's not just not spiritual. I'm going to hunker down here for five minutes with the Lord because my alarm is going off or whatever it is. Stop and work back that assumption and say, no, 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 no. The most important thing about me is what I think about God, as J.J. quoted A.W. Tozer. The most important thing about me is how I relate to him. It will shape everything for all of life. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I come before you this morning and we come before you 
We come with hindrances. We come with improper definitions of prayer. We come with poor and painful experiences of prayer. We come with shyness. We come with fear. We come with hesitancy. We come with all of this baggage when it comes to communicating with you. We can't see you, so I don't even know if you're listening. Holy Spirit, would you pierce those objections in us, and would you draw us into communion? with the Father, and where we have just jettisoned prayer in our own lives, and instantly guilt and shame creep in and just convince us to scroll a little longer on the phone or to go busy ourselves with something, Holy Spirit, would you stop us in the moment and remind us that it's the will, it's the will of our Father to redeem us in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus Christ himself has invited us into the same kind of intimacy and closeness and connection and frequency of connection that he himself has with the Father. And would we lean in that direction? And as we do, as we mimic the life of Jesus, would we experience the spiritual temperature of our lives turning up? Would we experience change? Would you give us hope to overcome our addictions, our failures, would you direct our gaze at you, not just a long to-do list in order to please you? We know through Galatians that that's not how we are justified. We are justified by looking at Jesus Christ, trusting that he is enough for us, placing our faith in him, and trusting that you will do your work in us. And one foot at a time, we move forward. So would you help us to do that this morning and over the course of this week and help us to memorize our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, and to pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.